So this evening we're picking up a conversation we began, I think it was last Sunday, I lose track of the weeks I'm afraid, called Marching Orders. I believe that we're at a point in history where God is rallying the troops, gathering his people, spiritual warriors, who maybe have been wearied by religion, a little bit wearied by duty. God is inviting them to a higher place of intercession so they can herald and open up the new thing that God wants to do here on the earth. And uh, we have been for some time now enjoying on our Wednesday nights a real sense of the freshness of that invitation. God just so loves to include his children in all that he's seeking to do. And I, for one, have already signed up. I'm going. (laughs) I don't even know where it will end. I'm not even sure how it will work. But there's enough about it for me to know that my heart has been longing for something like this for a long, long time. And I'm trusting that the Lord is speaking to you. If you have an invitation from heaven, if you're sensing God calling you to a deeper place of intimacy and intercession, then please don't fight it. It's not the devil. It's God. And he's desiring to bring you to the deeper places of his heart because he has greater things he wants to do in and through your life. I would suggest that you RSVP. In other words, say to him, Lord, I don't know what this is going to look like. I don't need to know what this looks like. I just need to know who you are. And because I know who you are, I'll follow you wherever you go, Father. You can take me wherever you need me to be, Father, for the sake of your kingdom's extension. And Father, that kind of courage, I pray, Lord, you'd release over this gathering tonight. Father, we don't want to be people who pay lip service to serving and following after you. We want our lives to demonstrate that that's the truth, so much so that we actually align ourselves with your purposes and your plans. So go with me, please, if you can, as we start our conversation this week on the power of perception. We're working with this invitation from God to see things differently. And when we start to see things differently, we start to act differently. It's important for us to know that we will never act differently unless we see things differently. That out of a a revelation or a beholding of who God is, we start to live our lives according to what we've seen. You can't be what you can't see. I mean, you can put a lot of human effort into that. You can try and become what you think you need to become. But actually, God has orchestrated Straighted it in such a way that we need to discover and be discovered and receive and have revelation of his heart, his nature, his character. And out of the overflow of those revelations, we start to live our lives. And actually, then it starts to move away from being something that's a chore. And it starts to be something more of of a joy and a celebration in the way that we live our lives. And the reason why all of this is important is that you will know, like I have seen and heard on the news that we're living in exceptional times. You know, when I was a little boy, you would hear the occasional um, sense of disaster or, or, or crisis in the world. Obviously, we didn't have the social media capacities we have now. But I think probably throughout the whole course of my childhood, there would have been maybe three or four major world changing events that took place. It would seem to me, and I don't know if you've thought this recently, that just about every other week, there's something of that kind of significance and that kind of importance that's happening on a regular basis. So much so that we can't keep up with them. We move from one disaster to the next, one circumstance to the next. And if we're not careful, we'd be so disorientated by all of that that we'll actually feel a little bit paralyzed 
in our spiritual journey with God. And in some cases, I think it's probably safe to say that the news is not good news. Just about every day you turn on the television um, trying to catch up with what's happening in your world or the world around you or the wider world and you'll discover that there's very little good news. We're not even sure what is true or what isn't true anymore. We find ourselves, you know, tossed about by all kinds of opinion and um, one week we're for this and the following week we've heard somebody else speak and we're against the very same thing we were for last week. And, and there's such a turbulence in, in the spiritual realm, seeking to engage our minds in, I believe, things that are futile and temporal. In other words, our energies are caught up with worrying anxiety and trying to uh, live in a world that's so full of confusion that we are paralyzed and we have no energy left for that which God has set before us. And we need to be diligent in our minds and in our hearts and in our homes about what we allow in. We need to be discerning about what we watch and we need to be intentional about seeking the Word of God and living in and abiding in the truth of who He is. It will become for us a plumb line in days that lie ahead. Lots of things will happen in and outside the church that will and could possibly lead us astray. In fact, the Scripture says that even in the last days, the elect shall be deceived. Here we are elected by God into His family and the possibility of deception is all around us in just about every facet of society. And sometimes you, even in the church, find people saying all kinds of things that look like they seem like they're true or even maybe a sense of the kindness of God is coming through those things. But actually, if we're not in the Word of God, and more importantly, if the Word of God is not in us, people's opinions and perspectives and, and you know, opinions a little bit like, you know, your touche, everybody's got one. And, and people's perspectives and opinions just guide us away sometimes from the purposes of God. So we need to know that truth. And that truth needs to be abiding in us and residing in our minds and consistent in our thinking. And then whenever we enter the world in which God has placed us in, we're equipped to be able to discern what is righteous and good and, and excellent and what isn't. And so every day becomes a battle. And the battle for your mind and the battle for your agreement is the battle that's taking place on the earth today. And sometimes I think over the years I've agreed with things, with good intentions that actually had bad outcomes. I've agreed with um, a greater mercy to be evident in the way that we handle people who are outside the kingdom of God. But the truth is, perhaps we have watered down the gospel so much that it no longer has the same impact on people's lives. In our desires to be seeker-sensitive, perhaps we have become less sensitive to the presence of God and the person of God and the truth of God in the way we live our lives. And I'm all for inclusion and I'm all for acceptance of all things, but of all people, but I can't accept all things. And, and so in our great intentionality, even in the church, to try and adopt a posture of relevance in the world, we perhaps maybe have diluted some things or even overlooked some things that are so important to us in the days that lie ahead. And the good news of all this is that God is raising a people who are fierce. That was you, by the way. Fierce. Amen. Passionate about Him. Passionate about His presence. And passionate about His purposes and His truth. And God is raising a people from amongst the people. And uh, it's got nothing to do with denominations and everything to do with end time orchestrations. God is awakening warriors. He's awakening his bride. He's awakening his lovers. And he's awakening us to be diligent as watchmen and women on the walls of society, just speaking life into our communities. 
And so every day is a battle. The world is battling for your mind. It's battling for your agreement. It's battling for you to subscribe to all kinds of things. And sometimes I think we have to press the unsubscribe button occasionally and say, I'm not signing up to that. That doesn't make you intolerant. It just makes you clear. It doesn't make you hard of heart. It just makes you reliant on God and God's truth and his words. And we need to separate some of these things. So in 1 Timothy chapter 6, perhaps you could go there initially for me tonight. We're going to go through a few different scriptures. <clears throat> 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 12 talks right into this, this warfare of words that exists in our world today. And Paul, speaking to Timothy, writes these words. He says in verse 12, fight the good fight. Now, what is a good fight? Any thoughts on that? You know, I come from a family of fighters. Both my brothers were uh, kickboxers. Um, my nephew is the bantamweight champion, world champion in our country of Great Britain. And uh, my family were scrappers. I'm, I'm glad that God took something that was bare knuckle and made it professional over time. And uh, eventually some people managed to earn some money out of it. But, you know, there's no guarantee, even though my, my nephew is growing in his popularity and his influence and lots of people are connecting with his story as it starts to become very visible to us and to others, his talent. But, but the reality is there's no guarantee that he can fight a fight and win every single one. And in fact, here's the problem. The minute you get a title, you start to get contenders. You know, up until he had a title, there wasn't that much interested or ap appetite for fighting him. But now that he has a title, they get consistent invitations to defend the title. And he has to go through all kinds of training, mentally, emotionally, physically, dietary, all kinds of things. I mean, I couldn't think of anything worse in the world. But if he wants to win the fight, because there's no guarantee, he doesn't have a great knowledge of his opponent, he has to study that. If he wants to win the fight, he can't casually meander towards the dateline, hoping that past trophies and accolades will get him through what is ahead of him. He has to stay lean, he has to stay keen, and some would say he has to stay mean. <laughs> but I'm not going to title that team. He's a lovely young man. So Timothy is being exhorted by Paul to be good at the fight. To be equipped and ready and, and alert and on fire. Thank you. But listen to the phraseology here. It says... Fight the good fight. And what is a good fight? That both opponents are equal in stature? No, a good fight simply is one that you are guaranteed you're going to win. Now, I want to just say something to you, if I can, about what I believe is important for us. You have been given a title. In many ways, you are the heavyweight champions of a new world that God is trying to bring to pass. Where once you carried a chip on your shoulder, you carry the cross of Jesus Christ. 
the mark of those who have submitted their lives to his purposes and his plans. There will be contenders for your title. There will be people who will seek you out, demonic forces that will hunt you down because they want to take you out of your position in Christ Jesus. They want to destroy what God has placed in you. They want to ruin the reputation of Christ and they don't mind who they knock out to do it. So you cannot be indifferent about the fight that you're in. Whether you see this or you don't see it, there are all kinds of demonic forces that are coming after our lives, seeking to take the title from us. You call yourself a child of God, I will show you how disgraceful your life can truly be. We must be alert and on guard and in training consistently. We must be lean, we must be keen, but we must never be mean. Not to each other, because God is not mean to the world. We must operate out of joy and out of kindness. But I want to encourage you tonight. It's a fight that you can win. Because it's a good fight. Because God's goodness is greater than anything else. It's his goodness that has won your heart. It's his goodness that has invaded your soul. It's his goodness that's transformed your life. And it's his goodness that has kept you and rewarded you and healed you and restored you. It's good to fight on that side of the fence because his goodness is the mechanism and the means by which the battle is won. It's a good fight because he has already won the victory. It's a good fight because he is in me and I am in him. And therefore the one who is victorious rules and reigns over all things. And as my life is hidden in him and his power is afforded to me, I start to become the kind of person that's equal to my adversary. It's a good fight because Satan is far less powerful than you realize. Not only does the scriptures tell us that he's a defeated foe, the scriptures tell us that he's under your feet. Now, my mother used to say to me when I was little that I was under her feet. I hope she wasn't thinking or referring to me in the terms of satanic powers. I can only hope that's not the case. She's not here anymore to ask her. But you know what? What she would say is you're getting in the way. It's almost like it was an irritant sometimes. Do you know, that's how we need to see demonic forces and spiritual powers. They're just getting in the way. They're just under your feet. They're just bothersome, troublesome, sometimes a little inconvenient. But because Christ has won the victory, because he has come to live in you and me, we are more than conquerors through him who strengthens us. More than conquerors. So it's not even an equal fight. You know, my mom would often, I don't know if this happens anymore, but years ago when I was raised, you would, you would, you would smack a child. Sometimes if I was bothersome, my mother would just give me a little clip around the ear. She often said to me, this hurts me more than it hurts you. I often went back to her and said, I don't think it does. But it was almost like at times just flicking some kind of 
insect that's irritating you. Church, tonight I want you to understand, not only are we marked out as people who carry a title here on the earth, not only are we God's heavyweight champions of a whole new world that he wants to bring, not only will there be contenders that come after what God has placed in your heart and in your life, but you are more than able to take those irritants and to not allow them to ever become too troublesome or difficult for you to deal with. The Bible says that he has placed Satan under your feet. He's bothersome, but you're not bothered because he doesn't have any power to take from you what God has placed in you apart from that which you allow him to. So you need to treat him with that kind of disdain sometimes. And I think sometimes when we talk about spiritual warfare, we speak as if the devil is as powerful as God. The devil is a fallen angel. He was created to serve the purposes of God in heaven. And I want to promise you this, that he's still serving them, whether he is willing or wanting to here on earth. He is a fallen angel. And even at his best, God will take what he does and uses it to bring glory to the name of Jesus. Satan is under your feet. So how do we fight this fight? How do we go about the battle? Well, I think it's important to say that everything that causes us to be effectual in this warfare comes out of our relationship with God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune community of lovers, grew to the point where they wanted to extend the boundaries and capacities of that love, and they created man. And man's greatest glory is to be called to be in intimate relationship with God. I often say to people when I'm trying to help them understand how significant we are in the order of God's purposes and plans, that when God fashioned Adam out of dust and Adam began through the ruach of God's breath over his nose to come to life, everything started with God peering into the, sorry, Adam peering into the face of God. I love the thought, it's not even an accurate one, but it's worth mentioning that the whole thing started with a kiss. We were created out of intimacy for intimacy. And when Jesus came, having witnessed hundreds and maybe a thousand or so years between Adam's separation from God, he came to restore everything that had been lost. The whole point of Christianity is not that we have religion or we have a set of ideologies or we have a mission or indeed a cause. All of those things are byproducts. The whole point of Christianity is that we have relationship with God. And relationship with God is the starting point to successful warfare. It says in the book of Daniel that those who know their God will do great exploits. And knowing our God is our greatest pleasure and most glorious call. Now we need to be careful about this statement because some people think that they already know God. But the truth of the matter is 
whatever we have discovered, there is so much more to him and so much more to experience with him than we currently have. And we may have a measure of knowledge and a measure of understanding, but the deep places of his heart cry out to the deep places of our lives, wanting and desiring for us a greater connectivity and a greater sense of intimacy. In John 17, Jesus said these words, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. If we want to be prepared for the battle, if we want to annihilate the adversities that come our way spiritually, if we want to be used by God profoundly, to cause his kingdom to come and his will to be done, everything comes from intimacy. It comes out of relationship with God. To know him is life. To know his mind, his heart, and his ways gives us access to a knowledge and a revelation that supersedes everything here on this earth. The knowledge of God, your knowledge of God, my knowledge of God is simply the most important thing about me. You see, many years ago, I went in search of myself. I tried all kinds of spiritual nuances over the years, but I found myself and didn't like what I found. I found my brokenness. I found, I found my bitterness. I found my cynicism. I found all the things I hoped didn't exist and pretended weren't there. But when I went searching for myself, I found myself, which is good because that was the goal. But I didn't like myself or want myself when I found myself. Now, some would say that self-rejection, I think it was just clarity. That God was showing me that the answers did not lie in me. I would not find my sense of purpose and truth and life wrapped up in just knowing who I am. But there is one whom when we discover him, or more importantly, are discovered by him, transforms everything in your life. God wants you to know him. He wills it. He has offered revelation of his heart and his nature in so many ways by his word and his spirit and prophecy and the community of God's people, by the world around us, there's demonstration after demonstration of the reality that his, his intentionality is that you would see him, that you would know him. Because in the knowing of him, you have an authority and a power, not just to live for him, but to awaken others around you to the truth of who he is. So we fight the good fight, the one we know we can definitely win. A fight that is indeed already won by Jesus Christ. And we're standing in the reality of his victory. We're of course going to cause a lot of interest in our lives because the adversary to Jesus is trying to take down anything that brings credit or glory to his name. But we're title holders. Here's our title, a royal priesthood, a holy nation set apart for the purposes of God. Sons and daughters of the living God, the firstborn who've been raised from the dead through Christ Jesus, 
walking resurrections, full of hope and full of life and full of truth, seeking to bring his kingdom to pass here on the earth. Secret weapons of mass destruction who God uses in our ordinary everyday lives to do extraordinary things. So finding out who he is, discovering who he is, abiding in intimacy will produce an authority in us that makes the battle easy for us. And I think sometimes we'll battle weary because we've been fighting the wrong fight. We've been misunderstanding how to live as people in relationship with God out of rest. We've been striving to attain things that Christ has already won for us. This new life that Jesus has purchased is already a done deal. You are a new creature in Christ. The goal here is not to fight for this new life. You already have new life through Jesus Christ. The goal here is to abide in the reality of this new life. We must become new man theologians who are trying to live out of the reality of what Christ has already done for you and me. So when I think of knowing God, I think there is so much I could say about that. And in fact, it's been the adventure of my life to try and know God. I think some days I do better than others. Some days I mistake who he is for something or someone else. Sometimes I don't always trust him. I don't always get what he's doing or how he's doing it. But actually, my heart has been given to him in pursuit of understanding who he truly is for me in my life. And if you have a Bible, I want to take you somewhere because not only are we invited to intimacy, but intimacy does something in you and me that creates momentum spiritually. So in Galatians chapter 5, we have maybe assigned this particular portion of Scripture to some kind of productivity that comes out of intimacy with God. And in truth, there is some evidence to say that it could be interpreted that way. But actually, what we're about to talk about is the fruit of who God is. It's the, the aspects of his nature, the, the, the tenets of his character. What God wants to do in us out of intimacy is make us like him. Now, I don't mean make us like him as indeed, I like you, God. I mean, make us like him. Make us Think like him, act like him, respond like him, fight like him. So it says the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 verse 22 is love. Do you know one of your greatest weapons against all adversity is love? It would make sense therefore that God has been teaching you how to live in love, how to Grow in love. How to know what love is and how to share love with the world around you. One of the greatest fights you'll ever fight is the fight to stay in that posture and that place of connectivity to the love of God. One of the greatest areas of warfare you will have is the enemy trying to steal the love of God from your life. And I've said to people over and over again, he's not after your ministry. He's not after your work. He's not after your house. He's not after your family. All such things are temporal. But these three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of which is love. So every day as I stand in this world, the enemy is coming to steal from me something that has been given to me by the goodness of God. 
and that is his love. Love loves no bounds. It has, keeps no record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil. It rejoices in the truth. Love is patient and kind and it's generous. Love is good for me. It's who I truly am. It's why I'm really here. Love is my truest identity and it's my destiny to carry love, to know love, to be in love, to abide in love and to release love over the world in which he's placed me. And so one of the greatest weapons of your warfare is you walking in the reality of God's love. You living and abiding in the truth that you are loved. If you don't know that you are loved, you will be vulnerable to the allegations and accusations of the world around you and indeed the enemy that's against you. Our greatest and most powerful weapon is to know that I am my beloved's and he is mine. And as I live in that reality, I start to have a clarity about all kinds of things. I see myself differently. I see the world differently. The enemy doesn't even feel like it's something I need to be bothered with because there is no weapon that he can fashion against me that can prosper when I'm living and abiding in the love of God. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. We need to know how wide and long and deep and high and rich and powerful the love of God is. And as we live in that reality, we start to become effectual against our adversary. And sometimes I think we try to engage in warfare, but we have not love. We know not love. We live not in love. And here's the problem with that. Before we know where we are, because we're not abiding in that true identity, we'll start to think that we, by human effort, can tear down the strongholds of the enemy. Love wins. Let it be written over your life. It's the story of what God has done in you. Love has won your heart. Love has changed your life. Come on, church. Love has awakened you to who Christ is. The power of God's love is transforming power. It's powerful above all things. It's what we were created out of and it's what we were created for. And of course, it's only natural and supernatural that Jesus would reconnect us to the love of God. I'm very grateful to God that my initiation into Christian walk and, and, and journey with Jesus, discipleship, was not one that was birthed out of fear. I didn't come to Christ because I was frightened that I was a disappointment. To be honest with you, I was so used to being told I was a disappointment by any, everybody, it wouldn't have mattered if Jesus thought it too. But he touched me with love. He touched me where fingers can't reach. He touched me in the deepest recesses of my human experience and he awakened me to him. And 33 years later, I'm not standing here doing what I'm doing because I'm good at anything. I'm standing here doing what I'm doing because I am compelled because he has loved me so powerfully. I have a message I believe in the middle of my brokenness that speaks of a God who delights in humanity. And this cannot be produced by human effort. We must accept that God in his benevolence has given us everything pertaining to a life of godliness. So love. And there you were thinking that power, 
was the thing that would destroy the adversities in your life. No, love will always win. It will always win. It will always come through for you. It will always break down the strongholds that are against you. That's why Jesus says, greater love has no man that he should lay down his life for a brother. In other words, do not contend with one another. The key to releasing the kingdom is love. He said of his church, and they shall know that you belong to me. You can be identified with who I am because the love you have one for another will be demonstrated. Love. An aspect of God's nature so powerful that it catalysted Jesus out of the heavens as he walked in obedience to bring salvation and restoration between God and man. For God so loved the world. And if you have not love, you will not be able to have joy. <laughs> you, you see, there's something joyous about knowing I'm loved. Now, now, I used to think that joy was superficial. I used to think it was, you know, for the lightweights. Clearly, I'm no lightweight anymore. I thought joy was, you know, it was that exuberant stuff that happens sometimes. And tonight we were borderline joyous. God help us. If we ever fully get it, we flirt with joy. We're frightened of joy. Joy is intimidating because it causes us to open ourselves up to a new reality. It's a powerful force to be filled with joy. And when you are in the love of God, the next aspect of his nature that begins to form in you is joy. Salvation, joy. Joy, salvation. You see, if I am predisposed in the love of God to a joyous disposition, I don't interact with my enemy perceiving him to be a problem. Like the Lord himself who laughs at those who try and posture themselves <laughs> for positions of power and authority. I can look in the eye of an adversity and say, no, joy will determine the outcome of this interaction. Love is my foundation stone. Joy is my invitation. Now, people say to me, you know, God is... Hard and harsh and no, 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 no. You see, you only think he's harsh and hard if you haven't experienced his love. If you haven't experienced his love, what he requires of you cannot fully become available to you because your human effort and your religious practice won't take you where love can take you. It won't open up for you the things that love can open up for you. And if you're not careful, you won't get better. You'll just get bitter. So we need to abide in the love of God. We need God's love to be shed abroad in our hearts. We need to be so in love with him that we're preoccupied by everything he is and everything he says and everything he wants to do. And the joy of salvation will start 
to be vibrant, vibrant in our souls. Without joy, you will never live in peace. You see, joy is a posture of confidence in the nature and the character of God. Joy is the reality of His truest identity. Joy to the world, the Lord has come to me. Salvation has visited me. God is happy. The church is catching up. And out of that comes this certainty. And certainty is always important when it comes to peace. I sang a song this morning, which actually is all about that. It says, I know my Redeemer lives. You see, out of love, out of joy, peace abides. Now, peace is not the absence of problems or difficulties. It's the order of heaven's reality here on earth. It's kingdom come, will done. In me, through me, around me, about me. Have a look at Galatians with me. How many of us are doing well with the invitation to be in love and be loved and demonstrate love in the world around us? If you want to be effectual in spiritual warfare, if you want to be taking down all adversities that come against your title, as a royal priest to the holy nation set apart for the purposes of God, your marching orders tonight are to abide in love. This is your assignment. And out of that assignment will come joy. You see, when you're living in love, sorrow can only last for a night. Because rejoicing is so in your face, it's coming in the morning. Now, not a rejoicing that is wishful thinking rejoicing. (laughs) A rejoicing that's birthed out of a clarity and a certainty that God is with me. God loves me. God is for me. Who could be against me? And even if there was something against me, it's just a bothersome lie that's seeking to take from me what God has placed in me. How are you doing on love? You see, my goal is that I end my life more in love with him than I started out. You know, in church, we say you go through the honeymoon period. You know, what people mean by that is you get this euphoric sense of God's love for the first 18 months of your journey, and then it's all about duty and responsibility. Well, can I say this with respect to the pit of hell with that? If God saves the choicest wine to the end, this divine romance that's taken my place in my life should get better with age, not worse with age. I should be more in love with him at the end of the journey than I ever was at the beginning because at the beginning of the journey, I was naive and did not fully understand the scope of God's love. But as I journey with him into maturity, I should be maturing in love. There should be a weighty love in my heart and in my life. Amen? You don't sound convinced, church. There should be a weighty love. You see, I've watched men and women start out burning brightly for Jesus and fizzling out around mid-age. 
I want to go out more in love than I ever came into the kingdom of God. And if you are around, and some of you, if you are, I like white lilies. At my funeral, I want my family and those who know me personally, maybe those who know me a little bit corporately, to say the only thing we could ever say about this person is that he loved God. What an epitaph to leave behind. What a legacy for my daughter to step into as she seeks to go on her onward adventure with her God. How are we doing in joy? Some of us have made a career of misery. I'm being honest. Some of us think that true spirituality is miserable. I mean, you ditched joy in 1974 and you've never let her come back since. It's time to revisit joy. The sound of an overcoming warrior is the sound of joy. No, you didn't hear me, church. The sound of an overcoming warrior is the sound of joy. I'll say it again because I don't think you're quite getting it. The sound of an overcoming warrior who keeps their title and wins their battle will have the sound of joy. We shall go out with joy. Love and joy, they create this environment of the kingdom where we know that he rules and he reigns over all things. His abiding presence, his glorious goodness becomes more of a reality to us on life's journey. Now, when I live in the cocoon of the kingdom, I am unpenetratable by any fiery dart of the enemy. You see, when I first got saved, there used to be a thing that people talked about. It was called an assurance, not an insurance, an assurance. Do you know that one of the things that's coming back to the church of Jesus Christ is a blessed assurance that we have this confidence, this robust clarity, the certainty above all certainties that I'm hidden in Christ, that God is with me and for me. And it's going to become more and more important as the world becomes more and more hostile, that we live with the peace of God. And here's what it looks like. It just surpasses all understanding. We don't know how it works, but we're really glad that we've got it. We don't have a clue how God brings it to the fore in our lives, but it comes out of joy and it's birthed in love. So our marching orders are fairly clear to us. And of course, as you read through this, you start to see that God always brings more than just what is required because he's the God of abundance. So he brings patience. Do you know one of the skills of a great fighter is patience? Do you know the great Muhammad Ali would wait for the second and the moment where he knew this is it and he would take his opponent down. We have to become very strategic in the battle sometimes. Very clear that there'll be a moment and a time when whatever is against you will be taken down. Here's why we know it'll happen. We know it's coming down because God has promised that greater is he who is in us 
than anything that is around us, so it's got to come down. But whether I'm aware of when it's coming down or how it needs to come down, that will determine the outcome of the down. We need patience. We don't exhaust ourselves on the ropes of adversity, bouncing around trying to posture ourselves to look good. We're skilled and clear. You know, the art of a great fighter is not that they punch well. That's only a small part of the fight. It's that they dodge every bullet. I've watched my, my nephew in the ring. He was a kickboxer, now he's a boxer. And, and I've watched how he does. He exhausts his opponent. <laughs> he exhausts. And when the guy is unable to keep up, he goes down. <laughs> We're patient because we know that moment is coming. And we want in love, with joy, abiding in the peace which surpasses all understanding, which is God's order here on earth, which brings confidence and clarity to the moment. We want to take out our adversary with one punch. Why would you be dancing for hours when you can just do this? <laughs> Satan, go ahead. That was quick. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are our invitations as we stand in a moment of being raised by God to be spiritual warriors, living out of the reality of who He is in us and who we are in Him. An intimacy and a clarity a certainty and a heaven's reality causes us to be very effectual against our adversity. God is training your fingers for battle as I speak. And some of us here tonight are exhausted because we've been fighting from some other place than this place. Why is this important? Because this is the nature of God. And it was the nature of God to destroy the works of the enemy. When we're living in the reality of the nature of God, we're in the best possible place of advantage over anything and everything that seeks to destroy what God's doing in our lives. I feel very strongly, because I've never spoken on this type of thing before, I feel very strongly to disclose things I've learned, I suppose, on my journey. I've never thought of this as a sermon <laughs> For me, it's got to be more than that. It has to be a lifestyle. And these invitations that I've had from God have opened up things over the years that have shocked me and surprised me. Not because I know God can't do those things, but because I'm surprised that he used my ordinary life to do so. Living in the nature of God and allowing the nature of God to become a reality in me actually makes me very effectual against the enemy. When we went to the church we were pastoring in Glasgow, we had lots of people tell us not to go. We were in a fast-growing church in the city of Birmingham, 
God was doing great things. We saw hundreds of people come to faith. And people said to me, you're mad. You're mad. Why would you go to Glasgow? Here's what they said. It never stops raining. And the people don't speak English. Which, of course, isn't true. Well, mostly. And I remember we packed up our house, we sold our house, and we drove the long journey up to Glasgow. And the only thing I can say to you is, I didn't look behind me worrying about what was left behind because I knew that we had finished what the Lord had asked us to do in the place we were in. And we were looking forward towards this great adventure. What would the future look like? And it was there at that point that God began to speak to me about the reason why he relocates people to different parts of the world. And he started to open up for me a real sense of clear calling on my life. And that is to become a cultural architect. To step into environments and change what needs to change. Open up what needs to be opened up. Shut down what needs to be shut down. Awaken that which needs to be awakened and bring people to an alignment that is their God-given assignment. So we journeyed to Glasgow and we pull in at the side of the road. Jane, I and Emily was just the tiniest little baby at that time. And we looked at where he had sent us to. And it was rough. Now, I've done rough I wasn't as shocked as my wife, who had never done rough. And I suppose her abiding thought was, what kind of a life will our daughter have in this kind of context? I think what made matters worse is that we went past a pub. Now, it's not that going past a pub is a terrible thing. In fact, maybe some of you should try it more often. But this particular pub, the fight that existed on the inside spilled out onto the outside. And as we were sitting in the traffic lights, a good 10 or 15 men <laughs> tumbled into the road in front of us. And I heard from the passenger seat, oh my God, what have you brought us to? We pulled over to the side and we said, God, you never make mistakes. There must be something about here that's good for us. There must be something about us that's good for here. And in you we trust. We stopped to ask directions. We got sent to the other side of the city. <laughs> couldn't find the church. Well, the reason we couldn't find it because it wasn't there. It was on the other side of the city. And we had so much of a problem trying to understand any direction anyone was giving us. It was the gift of discernment that caused us to arrive at the church in the end. That or a process of elimination. We've been down every street in the neighborhood. This has to be it. When we saw the church, it looked like a community center. My heart sank. I thought, oh my goodness, Lord. <laughs> what have you brought us here for? I don't look Jane in the face. In fact, there are some times that I recommend, gentlemen, that you learn from me. Eye-to-eye -eye contact is fatal. Because if the eyes are the windows of your soul, you do not want her 
or him for that matter, to see what's going on in your soul. If I had sunglasses, and they wouldn't have been necessary in Scotland. If I had sunglasses, I would have put them on because it would have hidden my sense of disappointment. We opened the door and we looked inside and we closed the door and we came outside. (laughs) She grabbed my hand and I grabbed hers and we said, God, help. (laughs) Jesus. Do you remember that song? Jesus, take the wheel. Take it first. It's not even theologically right because he lets you drive and he's just your sat nav, but you work it out. And so a tear fell down her face and I hugged her and said, God's good. Which doesn't always pacify situations like that, but I could think of nothing else to say, which is unusual for me. First meeting we went to was standing on the front row of a church in a context we've never known, with people we barely understood, to be honest, with all kinds of questions about the will and the purposes of God. And this is what God said to me. I have sent you here to bring life to this city. As I stood there and heard that invitation, I realized that all the years we'd been in ministry, he'd been training us for this moment. That what we learned about him was now going to become evident through our lives to other people. And I know that this will be the best adventure of all here at KT, but you need to know that I've already had an appetizer from God. We saw people saved and healed and restored, and the presence of God was so powerful in the room at times you wouldn't open your mouth for fear that you would disrupt that what you wanted to do. God did amazing things in and through our lives in Glasgow. And he taught us in the midst of great adversity how to live in love. He trained us to abide in joy. He offered us consistently a mantle of peace, a sense that his kingdom had come upon our lives And the order of God was working itself through us. He trained us in patience. If God is long-suffering, some of the meetings I've been in have been invitations to be like him. You think we have long meetings here? We would pray into the night. It would go on for hours as the Spirit of God moved in power. Just when you thought you could get up off the carpet and go home, He'd move again in another powerful way. God taught me about his kindness, which leads people to repentance. He trained me to be kind. I was not born kind. He trained me to be kind. And I hope that any interaction you have with me, you can see the demonstration of the redemptive power of God in my heart and in my life. I seek to be kind. I long to be kinder because God is the kindest person that I ever met. He trained me to believe that his goodness triumphed over everything and anything. Sickness, disease, brokenness, demonic forces. We saw his goodness transform our community in such a powerful way. He was faithful to us, faithful 
in us and faithful through us and faithful to perform for us all that he promised to do. He was gentle and tender with the way that he guided us. He was always the most incredible encourager in every scenario that we faced. And he taught me how to live in a place of trust where I did not have to push anything or create anything. I just needed to abide in the thing that he was doing. And out of that, the atmosphere changed. And God began to change, not just the church, which actually grew quite extensively. He began to change our finances. In fact, the area the church was in became one of the hot spots for property in the city. And when we left Glasgow, you could not buy a property in that area because the eight years we'd been there, God had brought such a, a blessing to that ge geographical part of the city. You know, when we first went there, we tried to avoid it. Everybody tried to avoid it. And as we were leaving, everybody was coming in. You know, all the posh people. No, any posh people. All the posh people. They were coming in and all the people that lived there couldn't afford to live there anymore, which is a sad part of that work. How we see him, how we know him, how we perceive him, how we understand who we are in him, they offer us a perspective that's powerful in so many ways to tearing down the strongholds of the enemy. And I've done my best tonight to share with you things I've learned on my journey regarding spiritual warfare. It's not so much what I say that intimidates the enemy. It's who I am. Who you are is the most frightening thing to any demonic force. So abide in love. Be exuberant in joy. Let his peace rule and reign. As you engage with all that he wants to do, remember this, that God will teach you that he's strategic patiently to take down strongholds of the enemy. Let kindness be the words that come out of your mouth and the intentionality of your heart. Let his goodness triumph over every brokenness, every weakness, every demonic force. Let his faithfulness and your faithfulness in and with him actually cause God to work through you in powerful ways. Stay gentle. You know, gentleness is not weakness, it's meekness, which is there's a knowledge of power, but you operate and speak very specifically out of mercy. And God will teach you to be self-controlled. That takes me full circle to my nephew, who when he seeks to contend, or someone's contending with him for his title, is completely and utterly diligent about all matters pertaining to that fight. He cannot rely on past victories. This is a new adversary. He needs to have great clarity and diligence. Keen, lean, never mean. But he knocks them out and takes them down. And that's what God is trying to teach the church.